The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. This is the People's History of Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. In this episode, we're looking at Kansas City's tangled history with McDonald's. Get yourself ready for a trip through McDonald's land. McDonald's has over 38,000 locations in over 100 countries. According to McDonald's, 93% of those restaurants are owned by local entrepreneurs, a.k.a. franchisees. You can't separate McDonald's success from the success of the franchisees. But in the beginning, that opportunity was really only available to white people. Until something happened 55 years ago this month. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. When Martin Luther King died, almost everybody black I know had a sentiment that led toward, I'm going to do something for my community. They are really taking a risk by establishing an affinity organization for African-American franchise owners, but they do it because they're fully aware of just the challenges of black business ownership during that time. The story you're about to hear is about so much more than just McDonald's. It's about race and capitalism in America. It's about the fight for civil rights. And it's about how all of those things came to a head in Kansas City. When King was assassinated, it just snowballed. Caucasian operators that were in black neighborhoods were fearful to come back into the black neighborhoods. We looked at it at that time that black businesses could ride on the wave that we were making. So producer Mackenzie Martin has been digging into this story. It's the second part of our mini-series on how fast food shapes our world and the role that Kansas and Missouri have played in that change. I'll let her take it from here. January 16th, 1975 was a chilly day to hold a protest in Kansas City. But it was really only a handful of protesters anyway. They stood, clad in long coats, outside the McDonald's at 2804 Prospect Avenue. The boycott kicked off shortly before noon. Picketers held signs that said things like, McDonald's carries big cash out of our community, complete with a drawing of a stick figure pushing a wagon of overflowing cash. Yeah, yeah, I remember... uh... Because I talked to someone about this. That's James Watts, the ombudsman at the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City. I recently showed him some old Kansas City Star articles about the protest. The boycott will be extended to other McDonald franchise if officials of the chain do not change its practice. One of the protesters quoted in these articles is community organizer Lee Bohannon. As it turns out, Watts knows Bohannon. So in the middle of our conversation, he just called him up and asked him what the deal was. Hey, Lebo. Lebo, how you doing? I'm good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing okay, man. Hey, man, I'm at KCU Aura, and I got you on speakerphone. Uh-huh. And I'm talking to a lady, and she she's doing a story about the McDonald's that was on Prospect. Right, right. Bohannon right, right, immediately right, knew right, what we were talking about. Who opened that up? Um, man, I, I, I got his name right at the tip of my tongue. Harry Webb? 
Had Webb. That was a, yeah. That's an interesting story, and uh, it had a lot of twists and turns as it was um, uh, materializing in real life. Okay, so what I've learned about this protest is that it was the result of years of growing tensions between Black Kansasidians and city leaders, McDonald's and the communities it served, and even inside the fast food chain itself. And I can't think of a better way to understand these conflicts than through the eyes of the two people on opposite sides of this picket line. The McDonald's franchise owner, Harry Webb, and the activist, who you've already sort of met. Can you say your full name and just how you want to be introduced? You introduce me however you like. My name is Lee Bohannon. Lee Bohannon was born on a farm in Arkansas. I'm one of the last generation African-American cotton farmers. So it was a bit of a culture shock when, in 1958, he moved to Kansas City. He was 14 years old. I lived at 1328 East 10th Street, and I can remember standing on the third floor and looking down and seeing uh, young people playing in the street, because at that time, there was a lot of people that lived in that area. His father didn't live with them, and with five younger siblings, he knew he had to help out. He'd carry groceries for seniors, for tips, and collect recycling. So I built a little route of picking up pop bottles, not only in my building, but in other buildings, and taking them in and cashing them in to help get some extra things for my mother. You were an entrepreneur. Yes, I have always been entrepreneurial. In high school, Bohannon was admittedly a C-plus student, favoring classes like woodwork and shoe repair. He ended up dropping out and getting a job at Tension Envelope Company. That's where he was working on April 4th, 1968, the day that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. died. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. King's death set off a wave of protests and riots in more than 100 cities across the country, what some called the Holy Week Uprising. Unlike most major cities, Kansas City was quiet for nearly five days. Detroit, Chicago, many places have had riots. Kansas City was almost on the tail end of that. Bohannon vividly remembers how nothing happened here until April 9, 1968, when King's funeral was nationally televised from Atlanta, Georgia. A great source of inspiration in the life of Martin Luther King will deliver the eulogy. This is one of the days that literally changed my life, but I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't even know this was going on. Bohannon was 23 years old, and after working the graveyard shift, he drove his younger brother to high school. He played a, a bass fiddle, a really big bass. Bohannon was near Manuel High School, just west of the Paseo, when he noticed this huge crowd of kids and stopped. And I'm like, why are y'all out of school? I'm just curious. I looked and saw some of them that I knew. And they were like, Lee, they let all the kids out in Kansas City, Kansas, to go to Martin Luther King's funeral, and, and they won't let us honor Martin Luther King in Missouri. And we told them if they didn't let us honor Martin Luther King, we was going to just leave. For some reason, that struck me as an honorable thing for young people to be trying to do. And they started saying, 
Lee, why, why don't you come out and walk with us? Won't no adults be with us? And when I started walking with them, I would share with them, okay, just kind of let's walk on the sidewalk, and when cars come by, let's get out of the way. Because I was always police conscious. It was never a, a really great atmosphere for young black men and police back then. Meanwhile, the same thing was happening at Lincoln and Central High Schools. And when we turned the corner to Central High School, the kids had all of the windows open and they was hanging out the windows because they had heard we were coming and they were waiting for us. And when we got to Linwood in Indiana and turned that corner, there was this roar that I still get chill bumps about now that all of a sudden the crowd that we were with and the people in the school in the windows, they were just like, yeah, and everything right there. And then they just pushed the doors open and all of the kids in Central came out and we were all out there at Linwood, Indiana. And that's where the police break that up. The crowd was in the hundreds now. And it was here that the tone of the demonstration began to shift. Kansas City police, who had been monitoring the situation since the start, sprayed some of the protesters with mace. Elsewhere in town, cars were getting overturned, windows smashed. By now, it's the helicopters is over and motorcycles and all of that. Despite the violence, Kansas City Mayor Eilis Davis agreed to meet Bohannon and other protesters at Parade Park, where Bohannon accused the mayor of wanting to keep the protesters isolated in the black part of town. Eventually, protesters and the mayor made their way to City Hall. He set a podium up here and had police officers there to make sure everything was okay. And he told me, he said, I'm going to come out and stand with you. There's actually a picture of this moment. Bohannon's in front of City Hall, shouting into a bullhorn enthusiastically with his hand in the air, while Mayor Davis just kind of stands silently behind him. By now, I'm enthused and engrossed in this. I'm like, man, you can't stop us from going and honoring Martin Luther King. Bohannon says he became friends with Mayor Davis later in life. But at this moment, he was frustrated. He came out and stood with us, but he didn't tell the police, don't do this anymore. He didn't adamantly say to the press that uh, these guys were okay and the police were wrong. It was here at City Hall, just after noon, when the violence escalated between police and the community. Days of utter chaos ensued. So they came in and started spraying tear gas in these little kids' faces and in my face. People started running. Uh, the police started moving towards them with their clubs. I, Alice W. Davis, mayor of Kansas City, do hereby declare and determine that due to mob action and civil disobedience, a state of emergency exists within the city of Kansas City, Missouri. Anybody after 7 o'clock, if you were black and were on the streets, you were arrested. We just broke windows and stuff like that, you know. Some people set fires. I remember Jack Weatherspoon's on 31st and Chestnut. It burned for four days during the riot. Patrick, uh, there's three white boys walking up 6th Street headed toward Prospect. Looked like they got something or carrying something. I couldn't see what it was. We were angry black children. We felt that that they had uh, done this to Martin Luther King. At this time, Chief Kelly says he cannot say that the situation actually is cooling off. In fact, he says that perhaps there's been some increase in the past half hour. It got so bad until the National Guard came 
with the tanks going down the street and stuff like that. Down Prospect. You're listening to Night B down WHB. This is Walt Bonin. It's midnight. We head in the final hour of what is, thank God, a much quieter night than last night. It is stupid to destroy your own community, but what you have to understand is we didn't own anything in that community. We didn't own none of it. 1,700 National Guard troops and 700 policemen were dispatched to restore order in Kansas City. By the time it was all over, a three-block section down Prospect Avenue had been destroyed. Six black people died, nearly 300 people were arrested, and city damages totaled around $4 million. Kansas City's uprising was one of the largest in the nation that week. This day is the day that literally changed me into the organizer that I am today. The day after King's funeral, the Kansas City Star wrote that Lee Bohannon had, quote, all the accoutrements of a young black militant. But it was he who acted as a link between city officials and emotionally charged high school students. In the same article, Bohannon calls the Kansas City police, which was 95% white at the time, trigger happy and gas happy. It was almost like morphing into something and then you look up one day and you're no longer uh, envelope majestic. On this day, I met Bernard Powell. Bernard Powell was a Kansas City civil rights activist. If you've ever seen a picture of him, he was almost certainly wearing a beret. He joined the NWACP when he was 13. And at 18, he participated in the Selma to Montgomery March alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was also the regional director of the Congress of Racial Equality. And in the immediate aftermath of King's assassination, he established the Social Action Committee of 20. Better known as SAC 20, its goal was to connect disparate groups across Kansas City, some new, some old, and to provide leadership skills to young African Americans. Lee Bohannon was one of the other founding leaders. When Martin Luther King died, almost everybody black I know had a sentiment that led toward, I'm going to do something for my community as a result of that. I'm not letting Martin Luther King's dream die. It was like a, a, a mantra that started getting in everybody's At any point in time, Bernard could say, hey, I want to get 200 people to come to some place. And everybody just go to their people and we would show up there. And that gave a sense of strength that Kansas City had never seen before. You have to remember how tumultuous this decade was. Tens of thousands of American soldiers were dying in the Vietnam War. We have to talk about what's happening in Vietnam as being a symptom of something that's happening all over the world. And in order for the anti-war movement to be effective, it has to link up with the struggle for black and brown liberation in this country. A number of political assassinations brought tragedy to a country already in mourning. President John F. Kennedy in 1963, Malcolm X in 1965, and Senator Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. The people who own and run the United States are trying to stop the black movement because they know that it is the spearhead of a revolution. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, banning discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. But segregation remained the rule in many places. Okay, now it's time to meet the second main character in this story, Harry Webb. 1964 was the year that Harry Webb got his first job at McDonald's. He was 20 years old and a student at Tennessee State University, a historically black college in Nashville. 
Well, I started working at McDonald's and they paid me a dollar 25 cents an hour. And coming out of my home state's Georgia, I thought it was pretty good money. Webb had moved to Chicago for the summer with a simple plan. He'd work, make some money, and then return to college. I worked there for maybe five or six weeks. And the owner came in and was impressed with my work. And he gave me a 10 cent raise. I called my mom and I said, Mom, if they think what I'm doing is good now, I'm going to break this guy. Towards the end of the summer, Webb was gearing up to leave when the owner came to him again. He told Webb, we want to make you a manager. How much would it cost to keep you? Webb didn't really want to stay in Chicago, but he had been taught never to say no. So he hatched a plan. I won't tell him that I won't do it. I'll tell him something that he'll reject. Webb told the owner $135 a week, which seemed like an insane amount of money. And he says, you got it. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, God damn. But since I had said it, then my word is my bond. I had to keep it. The manager asked, when can you start? Webb said, Monday. And then you didn't go back to Tennessee? Yeah. And my idea was to become the best black McDonald's operator that was in the city. If you're wondering why owning a McDonald's franchise was such an attractive prospect, let me introduce you to someone. My name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown, and I'm the author of the book Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Okay, this part of the story might be a little familiar, but McDonald's was originally started in the 1940s by the McDonald brothers in California. Then Ray Kroc took it national in 1955, and it expanded rapidly from then on, thanks in large part to Kroc's strategy of franchising, which employs local entrepreneurs to run individual locations. Chatlin says franchising is kind of like a distorted parent and child bond, in which the parent sets all the rules and the child pays all the household bills. You don't really own a franchise. You own the right to operate a franchise under certain agreements. You didn't need a fancy business degree to become a franchisee, but you did need access to capital. Today, startup costs for a McDonald's franchise will set you back more than a million dollars. And franchisees assume a lot of financial liability here. Then again, if you played your cards right, you could make a lot of money. Before the proliferation of fast food everywhere, some McDonald's franchise owners became millionaires. But remember, this opportunity was really only available to white people up until 1968, after King's assassination. One of the reasons why that changed has to do with white flight. As white residents left city centers, some of the white McDonald's franchisees decided to manage suburban stores instead. And what remained were these restaurants that were sometimes damaged from property damage or in communities that had suffered a lot of economic losses in the late 60s. McDonald's billed its decision to hire black operators as this initiative for inclusivity. But black operators were also a financial opportunity for McDonald's. You know, in many ways, this is risky business for the franchise owners. This is a test. McDonald's is seeing how they're going to operate after this moment of racial reckoning. And it, it turns out to be quite successful because McDonald's becomes a presence in places where a lot of businesses have left. The first black man to own and operate a McDonald's franchise was Herman Petty, a barbershop owner. In December 1968, he took over a location on the south side of Chicago. At the time, only about 1% of the nation's businesses were black-owned. Chatlin says that franchising is all about dreams. 
owning something, building wealth, and that black franchise owners saw themselves as torchbearers of Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, despite his obvious critiques of capitalism. And as it happens, this emanated from a very small part of the country. The first four cities with black-operated McDonald's were Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Milwaukee. Harry Webb was still working at McDonald's in Chicago when this was all starting. He remembers how black operators started getting together, developing this strong peer network. It was born in Chicago, actually speaking in a parking lot after a couple of drinks. We would sit in the bar and talk McDonald's until they would kick us out. But to realize his dream of owning a McDonald's franchise, Harry Webb had to move to Kansas City. And it's there that his path finally crosses with Lee Bohannon's at a picket line. The rest of this story revolves around one McDonald's franchise in the Santa Fe neighborhood of Kansas City. 2804 Prospect Avenue wasn't always a McDonald's. In the early 60s, it was a Safeway grocery store. I told this to Professor Marsha Chatlin. Yeah. She was not surprised. Well, one of the things that happens throughout the 1960s in this flow of capital out of communities is that grocery stores often close. They close because the margins are thin. They close because they don't want to be in certain communities and they don't come back. And I think that led to what we see now as an expansion of fast food in certain communities. This area around Prospect Avenue saw some of the worst damage during the 1968 uprising. James Watts from the Black Archives remembers going to this McDonald's as a teen. Early 70s, it could have been like the late 69, you know, after the riots. Do you remember anything else about that location? It was, it was just, some, you know, glad to have a McDonald's in our neighborhood because we didn't have nothing else. I mean, you know, at that time, McDonald's was new and exciting. 2804 Prospect no longer displays the Golden Arches. But in 1968, it was one of only a thousand McDonald's locations in the country. And it sat at the cross-section of civil rights and business in Kansas City, quite literally. One block north of this McDonald's was the headquarters of SAC 20, the community action group started by Bernard Powell and Lee Bohannon. And two blocks north of that was the Kansas City chapter of the Black Economic Union. Both groups were formed in 1968 and involved a lot of crossover with black McDonald's operators. So this moment of change, it was tied to politics, but also business. Yeah, we looked at it at that time that black businesses could ride on the wave that we were making. That's Lee Bohannon from SAC 20 again. Black businesses aren't the ones that start standing up and shouting at the mayor There were the young people and the radicals and the militants and the flower children. And a lot of black entrepreneurs found themselves with golden opportunities because of that. It was also at this time that this political concept called black capitalism was seeing a new surge in popularity. This is an ideology that left and right kind of agree on, but from different perspectives. You know, liberals are thinking that owning a black business Building black communities is a way of repairing some of the breaches that are caused by racial injustice and economic inequality. And I think for people on the right, supporting black business and black capitalism also helps kind of support segregation, which they weren't really willing to actually do anything about. 
Chatlin says what a lot of black people wanted in the 60s and 70s was decent housing, good schools, living wages, and for the police to stop beating them. What they got was an influx of federal money and guidance for black businesses. Richard Nixon was president back then, and this was a big part of his campaign pitch. I say to you that America can't afford four more years of what we had, and we need new leadership. The federal government makes these commitments of mentorship programs, of loans, and so it creates a system where you have Richard Nixon collaborating with people who would have formally identified as black radicals, but in this era of real kind of economic desperation, people are willing to make concessions in order to get access to these resources. These initiatives from the federal government helped get some black entrepreneurs in the door of a lucrative and growing industry, fast food. And in 1972, a group of these McDonald's franchisees joined together to form the National Black McDonald's Operators Association. They are really kind of taking a risk by establishing an affinity organization for African-American franchise owners, but they do it because they're fully aware of just the challenges of Black business ownership during that time. Two of the founding members were from Kansas City. One was Andrew Morell, who operated 2804 Prospect for a time. The other was Cloris Dale, who was kind of an entrepreneurial legend in town. He was somebody that I talked to a lot. He would come to SAC 20 and he would help us do things and invite us to stuff. He was a very intense guy. And I was always so fascinated with him, so we would meet and he would give me little different tips and stuff. The National McDonald's Corporation was resistant, though, to recognize the Black Operators Association. When they first met in Chicago, only 12 operators attended that inaugural conference. Other Black franchisees decided not to participate. Some were worried that organizing could threaten their ability to expand at McDonald's. Claus felt like, you can't keep me from doing what I'm doing. I'm breaking ground here. Watch me. But the group kept growing, fast. And in 1975, they held their annual gathering in Kansas City. The National Black McDonald's Operators Association spent a lot of time really asking questions about how they can be equally represented within the McDonald's system. And so they advocate for hiring Black marketing firms so that they can create advertising content that spoke to Black consumers. And what this will do, it will create a blueprint for other fast food restaurants to do the kind of minority recruitment efforts that we see today. McDonald's kind of starts this practice. When we last left Harry Webb, he was a McDonald's manager in Chicago with a dream. We, as minorities, often said that we would accept the McDonald's franchise sight unseen because we believe that much in their success. McDonald's corporate eventually offered Webb his first franchise, all the way out in Kansas City. And I accepted the offer. When was that and what location was it? 1972. 59th and Truce, I built that from the ground up. Three years later, Webb took over a second franchise location, 2804 Prospect. The way Lee Bohannon tells it, the problems began with a community bike race. SAC 20 members were going up and down Prospect, asking for donations from all of the area businesses. Bohannon says it was Bernard Powell who asked McDonald's to contribute. 
but he was told no. Something about a company policy. So Bernard was like, hey, man, I'm going to talk to somebody at McDonald's. So he got on the phone and started calling people at the national office of McDonald's or wherever that was, and they, he was getting the same story. So he said, well, I tell you all what we're going to do. We're going to pick at your place and our people are not going to shop at your place anymore. So we put up a picket line around McDonald's at 28th and Prospect. Sadly, we can't verify the story with Bernard Powell. He was shot and killed in 1979 at the age of 32. At the time, though, he told the Star that their boycott would continue pending the outcome of a meeting with a McDonald's official. They even threatened to extend the boycott to other McDonald's franchises in Kansas City if the chain didn't change their practices of, quote, only taking money out of the community. SAC 20 wanted McDonald's to contribute to the area's economic development and stability beyond just hiring black workers. They didn't do community work. They sold uh, Big Macs and, and fries. Bohannon says the purpose of the boycott was to send a message to the national office. It was time to coincide around the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What we were trying to do was to force the national not only to work with the community, but be better stewards with the owners and the managers that were black at McDonald's. So we took the point that regardless of whether you're black entrepreneurs or not, that's not going to keep us from putting pressure on the national organization of McDonald's. Something to remember here is that Harry Webb was the new guy on the block, literally. He had just taken over this location. He wasn't from Kansas City, and he was only somewhat familiar with SAC-20. When I purchased the franchise, I guess they saw me as part of the corporate world. They wanted to make sure I understood that I wasn't just making profit in the community and taking it out. According to Chatlin, the country saw a number of McDonald's boycotts like this. She says this one perfectly illustrates the tensions that emerged about whether a black-owned McDonald's franchise was an authentically black business. Because the question is, are they really invested or investing in communities, or are they merely just kind of engaged in kind of window dressing? They provide jobs, but it's all happening within the structure of the fast food industry that doesn't pay a living wage. Webb says the community was torn about the McDonald's protest, which he thinks only lasted a week or two. A lot of the people that he was trying to protect was hurt bad because there were people that lived in the community that was employed by me. And there were certain things that McDonald's required of me that I couldn't do. Eventually, Webb and SAC-20 came to a truce. Webb agreed to donate to various community events that SAC-20 and others were putting on. He said once they sat down and just talked it out, it was actually pretty congenial. That was one of the reasons why McDonald's were willing to get black operators so that they could come into the black community and be part of it. So I would have done it without the protest. I guess they were just trying to hold my feet to the fire to make sure that I knew. I don't know. It's impossible to know exactly what went down without being able to ask Bernard Powell. But Webb held true to his word. When Webb bought 2804 Prospect, it was an old-school red-and-white tile McDonald's. After the boycott, Webb renovated, adding a dining room. Even Bohannon remembers how it became a pretty popular gathering place for the Santa Fe neighborhood. Back then, hamburgers were 28 cents. Big Macs were 65. We would get a lot of coffee drinkers, and it was a perfect restaurant for that. One of the big highlights of Webb's career was watching the debut of The Happy Meal, which was born in Kansas City in 1977, 
the brainchild of acclaimed Kansas City marketer Bob Bernstein. We didn't bite it right away, but Bob was a salesman. I mean, he could sell anything, so he sold us real fast. Webb remembers how he gave a lot of teenagers in that neighborhood their first job. But he was strict about punctuality and dress codes. I had to teach them, okay, this is your schedule. You gotta be here on time. You gotta dress a certain kind of way. A customer is always right. You cannot argue with the customer. Webb wore a lot of hats in those days. Employer, friend, father figure, academic advisor. They would say, at least I'm passing, Mr. Webb. It's not an F. I go, no, no, no. Come on, you gotta give me at least a C to support it. What's the secret? Well, simple as it may sound, the secret is courtesy. And the big thing about courtesy is it's more contagious than the flu. If his employees didn't have a bank account, Webb would introduce them to the bank president at his bank and help them get one. When they got the paycheck, they could walk down to the bank and feel some sense of pride. 2804 Prospect was, in its own ways, a family operation. Webb says his best manager was his brother, Lewis, who went on to become a franchise owner himself. Part of what my book looks at is how did these franchise owners become such a presence? They definitely are very much, you know, invested on the success of McDonald's, very much invested thinking of this as a vehicle for community change and community uplift. It wasn't just in Kansas City where Black franchise owners were asking this question of how to support their community and gain their trust. Chatlin says operators supported historically Black colleges, in addition to holding job fairs and voter registration drives. There was always somebody in the community that wanted something. Most of the time, when you could, you always said yes. Was it what you expected, you know, to own a franchise after being a manager for so long, or were there some surprises? I ran across some things that non-minority operators uh, wouldn't have ran across. Other operators could get a little bit less insurance because everything was higher in the ghetto. I mean, we paid more, got robbed more. To be a McDonald operator, we endured a lot more obstacles than some of the other operators who were higher volume and, and better bottom lines than we were. Did that ever make you bitter or? No, because I guess had those obstacles not had been there, we wouldn't have been there. Those same things that were giving us trouble was, you know, one of the reasons that so many other non-black operators didn't want to be there. So it created an opportunity for us. So we just had to figure out ways to make it work. I don't know the right word for it, but I'm good. McDonald's was, was good to me. Of course, not all black operators, or employees for that matter, had the same positive experience that Webb did. Many are still frustrated with McDonald's. Over the years, lawsuits have claimed that McDonald's practices its own kind of redlining by allowing black operators to only own certain stores. In 2021, black operators led a protest at McDonald's world headquarters in Chicago, hoping to call attention to McDonald's discriminatory practices. Protesters alleged McDonald's put black operators in economically distressed communities with high levels of crime, leading to higher overhead costs and lower profits. It is not possible to say, well, everything was bad because we do see some positive outcomes. But I think a more important question is to ask at what costs? At what cost do these types of economic initiatives come at for 
local communities and for the people who are working within them. And I think that in many ways, this book is a cautionary tale about immediately pivoting to business in the marketplace to try to solve the problems of people. So you start your book, Franchise, with this really vivid scene in Missouri right after a police officer killed an unarmed black teenager. Can you break down that scene for me and and why you thought it was such an important place to start? Yeah, so I looked at the Ferguson uprising as a really important pivot point in the national consciousness about communities that are left behind. And so as I was watching in the summer of 2014, I just saw McDonald's. The McDonald's on Florissant Avenue in Ferguson, Missouri, was this really interesting kind of meeting place. One night when tear gas was deployed and protesters were feeling its effects, you know, they ran to the McDonald's to try to get milk to relieve the sting of it. Reporters would set up their live shots across the street or in front of the McDonald's. Police officers would go in, they would change their shifts at the McDonald's. All of these ways that McDonald's becomes another actor in this dramatic moment in American history, I wanted people to see that it wasn't just the place. It was a significant part of the story of struggle and the story of solutions and the story of unfinished business of race relations in America. In 1978, three years after the McDonald's protest, the Kansas City Star talked to Harry Webb about it. Webb told them he bought 2804 Prospect as a challenge and was glad he did. At the time, he was also the president of the Prospect Businessmen's Association. Well, you've done your homework there. Matter of fact, I had totally forgot about that. That was an interesting uh, time. How so? Well, we were just a lot of minority guys getting together with different ideas, coming from different backgrounds, trying to be investors in the community because a lot of people were moving out. And so that was a problem. Bernard Powell and them, they saw the same thing. Bernard Powell was famous back then for the phrase, ghetto or gold mine, the choice is yours. It was based on the notion that hard work could realize a community's full potential. SEC 20 spearheaded a lot of beautification back then, especially in areas affected by the 1968 uprising and on the Prospect Corridor. Webb says they shared the same goals. Before Webb moved to New Orleans, where he lives now, he'd join in on things like neighborhood trash pickup. Lee Bohannon remembers it, too. There were some of these guys that were really sharp at entrepreneur. That was like Clark Dale and, and, and Webb. I wasn't in any of that. I was in this social, political end of everything. We worked to make things happen in a sense related to Martin Luther King and civil rights and that kind of thing. Bohannon is 78 years old now, and he says he has a better understanding of where these McDonald's franchise owners were coming from. They were black men at a time when we were struggling for identity and all of that. And they worked for a company that did franchises, and franchises has a certain set of rules. Some of what I'm saying now, I kind of understand in hindsight. You see, back then, I really didn't understand it like that. But in hindsight, I understand Clarkston was just trying to make it and trying to get into the major cycle for black businessmen. Bohannon still lives in Kansas City. 
He has about 30 grandchildren now, plays a lot of chess, always wears a fedora, and somehow he seems just as fired up about America's youth as he was when he was 23. When I see uh, these young people on city council in Kansas City start speaking for reparations and educate the city on the fact that we need to do something about that, I'm fascinated. (laughs) And I can't help but look at part of what they are doing. They didn't pick that stuff up on their own. These are things that have been cultured into them through the work of their ancestors for years to come. The other thing that Bohannon is jazzed about these days? A community garden he's working on at 77th and Prospect, which is probably about as far from fast food as you can get. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan. Our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin, who also reported, produced, and mixed this episode, with editing by Gabe Rosenberg and me. We used archival audio from Missouri Valley Special Collections, CBS News, The History Channel, The New York Times, McDonald's, WGBH, Pacifica Radio Archives, and the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. Music this episode from Gil Scott Heron, The Animals, The Staple Singers, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this episode to Laura Ziegler, Ron Jones, Missouri Valley Special Collections, UMKC Special Collections, and the National Black McDonald's Operators Association. For additional reading, Mackenzie highly, highly recommends Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marsha Chatlin. And I should let you know that if you're hungry for more of Kansas City's McDonald's stories, there's a great episode of KCUR's Central Standard that's all about this. We'll link to it at kcur.org slash people's history. All right, that's it. Stay tuned. You'll be hearing from us again soon. Until then, I'm Suzanne Hogan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>